it's uh, Crafty from Craftworks Distillery. I'm in my shed tonight. Um, the still is bubbling away. I'm in, doing a wash run and I've got a, a brew which is underway, which I'll finish up at the end of this. So welcome, welcome all to Australian Craft Distillers. Woo, don't bump that, whatever you do. <laughs> Australian Craft Distillers shooting the shit live, unedited, things happen. So um, what is, uh, for those who haven't uh, seen the, the first episode, this is the second episode, what is Australian Craft Distillers shooting the shit? Uh, it's basically an idea that um, the craft industry, there's, uh, there's a lot of people in the craft industry, a lot of uh, personalities, a lot of personal stories. Um, and I thought, wouldn't it be good for a distiller to ask another distiller uh, a range of questions uh, coming at it from a distiller's standpoint and hopefully give you some sort of insight into how we think and how we operate and and also how we communicate with each other and how collaborative we are and the sort of conversations we have with each other. So we thought it's a good insight. So um, last week, it was our good mate, uh, Ed from OCD or Autocraft Distilling. And today it's great. We've got Valero from Joadja Distillery, uh, good mates of ours down at uh, Mittagong, just out of Mittagong. Uh, in a place called Joadja. So uh, without further ado, taking my Australian spirit, which is not my own. Uh, Val, what are you, what are you, what's in your glass, mate? What are you drinking? Okay, well, I followed your lead. Um, I was conflicted today because I had two that I really wanted to present and I'm going to go for both. I'm going to start off probably with our friends out west, I don't know if you can see that. I'll just hold it a little bit closer. Ah, uh, the Black Gate. Black Gate. This is the Apera. Now, of course, the Apera, which is the old sherry, uh, the Australian sherry version, if you like. Um, I had to pick this one, of course. Um, Brian and Janice doing wonderful work out west. Uh, fantastic spirit. Um, may as well hold it up. That's it there. And Look at just, that colour. Oh, the colour's incredible. Um, very, very jealous. But um, I think we can match that, you know, with our, <laughs> our Spanish sherry barrels. But uh, just a fantastic spirit, uh, true craft. Uh, but you, you know, um, uh, Brian is so passionate about how he does things. Uh, it ticks all the boxes. Interesting though, because uh, it's it's uh, unpeated as far as I know. But I can pick something up there. Maybe because right. direct, direct fired still. Maybe um, you get little burnt notes and other little things, which is really quite extraordinary. So it, and but the thing is that that's the charm about it that it balances things really well. So yeah. this is my pick for the day. Um, but don't forget, I've got another one I'll show you a little bit later. Very right, okay. good, fun. excellent. This All right, it. well, I, I'm drinking Karoo Distillery. My good friends at Karoo, they're Affinity Gin. Nice. Enjoying a little G&T tonight. And uh, husband and wife team out at uh, Karajong, uh, Devil's Wilderness. Super passionate, super technical. Uh, they're my gin mentors. I, I've actually moved into the gin, uh, small scale. I'm not in the gin world. I'm on the side. I'm still a whiskey maker, but uh, they're my gin mentors, and they say I'm their whiskey mentor. So it's a it's a good relationship to have. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, let's rip into it, eh? Yeah. Um, so, so the the approach with this is it's more conversational. 
it's um, we'll take uh, questions from the audience if there's anyone out there that's got any questions and um, yeah like I said it's unedited it's free flow it's Australian craft distillers shooting the shit that's the name of the series we're going to keep going 2020 2021 and I've got enough people lined up to 2022 so <laughs> we'll keep going so my question to you Valero is paddock to bottle so paddock to bottle uh, is something very, very unusual on, on, on the world stage. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's only about 15, maybe 20 people in the world that, that are doing it. Uh, and I know you've done it now uh, for how many, how many seasons have you done it now? Well, next, for, month, yeah, for next month in December, we'll be harvesting our fourth crop. Fourth crop, right. So what I'd like to do is is coming at it from the angle of why did you start doing it and how hard it was and the challenges you had right at the start to where you've got to where you're at right now, mate. Okay. So what happened was um, when I was beginning the journey here maybe eight years ago or so, um, I was doing tours at, at Joadja. As you know, it's a, it's a ghost town, a heritage site, and we were doing tours of the site. And one day, a fellow by the name of Peter Hope, uh, came along he was doing a tour and it turned out that the bus driver that was bringing these people along said if you have a look at the guy there with a hat his name's Peter Hope and he's running a distillery or he's operating a distillery paddock to bottle in Tasmania just west of Hobart ended up being um Redlands uh, not Redlands uh, um was it Redlands yeah, yeah oh, sorry Redlands. yeah Red, and, the original Redlands yeah yeah the original Redlands yeah. Uh, before others took over and all the rest of it. Anyway, Dean, ja out, Dean Jackson. Yeah. And, and anyway, so I, I asked this fellow, I said, I heard you're doing this distilling, the paddock to bottle. And I said, one day I'd like to grow some barley here. And he looked at the paddock and he shook his head and he said, you'll never grow barley here. And I said, okay, well, I won't. No problem. Kept going with it. And next thing, um, maybe a year or two later, I'm doing another tour. And this fellow taps me on the shoulder and he said, why don't you grow barley on the paddock? And I said, look, I've been told by an expert that you can't grow barley here. And he said, well, mate, I've been growing barley in New Zealand for 30 years. And I said, no, but this is special. It's got to be malting barley. And he goes, that's exactly what I've been doing, malting barley in uh, New Zealand for 30 years. And I said, well, what can you do? Well, what can you show me? And he said, well, I'll get you a crop. He said, it won't be high yielding, but it'll be unique. And that's it. That's when the light glow popped in my head. And next thing I know, I'm going. Now, this is important. This is to answer your question now, Crafty. This is where you've yep. got to make sure that you're sensible about separating a dream and reality. Mm -hmm. it's, it's expensive. It's not high yielding. It really has to be about passion. It has to be also about understanding that um, the field that you're going to use, um, number one, can grow barley. Number two, think about where you are because, for example, you know you've been down here and we've got, what is it, 10 acres under barley. We're going to extend that to about 30. But... You've got to think, how do you harvest? You're not going to get a contractor to come out and do 10 acres. Minimum. Not, not on your road. Yeah, <laughs> scale and not on our side. So you yeah. really have to understand the logistics of it, you know, the, the planning of it, our soil testing and other things. Then the other part, of course, is, again, if you're going to grow your own barley, and, and we talk about barley, we talk about other grain, we talk about other starches and sugars in general. But if you're going to do it on a paddock that you have on your property, that's very special. That's very personal as well. And the other thing about it is that you really have to let nature dictate what happens. 
if you go fighting against nature, it loses the craft component because then you become a chemist or a physicist or a whatever, a scientist. And while science is good, because you know I'm an engineer, I like science, but I don't like science when it controls me. I like to control the science. And believe me, you can't control weather. You can't control moisture content in the soil or the pH in the soil and other things. And so my, my takeaway, if you like, in answer is let nature do it. Low yield, oh. low yield unique flavour. So, okay, so from year one yep. and you harvested, you, you partnered with, um, with Voyager? Voyager Craft Molds for, from the yep. malting aspect. So what sort of discussions did you have with Stu? Because, yep. um, you know, I, I use Voyager. I'm a, yeah, I'm yeah. a huge fan of Voyager. Uh, what, week, week. Yeah. what conversations did you have to start with with Stu to go down the line of the malting it? Well, look, first of all, Stu's the one, as you know, the guys out west at Witten, uh, Nick Griffith, they're fantastic. Um, yep. First of all, the, the main thing was let's see what it does. So, of course, they do some preliminary testing just to see what the composition is and so forth. Now, of course, let's be blunt. Um, the, the barley you're going to grow on your own paddock may not meet certain criteria in, certain, in terms of being plump, for example, high yielding with all the components that proper malting barley should be. So yep. the good thing about the boys out where Stu in particular is that he explains this. He says, look, this is what you're going to get. You may have some issues with this or that or the other. I'll give you an example. In the second crop, um, we had high beta glucans coming through. It was blocking things up. It, you, you, you will have some struggles in terms mm -hmm. of yield and other process um, hiccups that you're going to come across. And that's where Stu comes in. They can go along and explain to you very clearly this is what's going to happen or not going to happen. Um, and also he'll give you numbers. He'll say, look, you're going to get about 96% um, germinating rate or, or whatever. Um, so the, the other good thing is a sense of humour about it, understanding that we're not trying to outdo anybody else. All we're trying to do is say, hey, we can do something here on our paddock and let, let again, your environment dictate where your flavour comes from. You can't get more craft than that. You know, we're yeah. not... And also it's single source. Don't forget that, and you, I don't know whether I, I showed you, but if you get, I'm not going to mention brand names, but you get some other grains, commercial grains, which are fantastic, nothing wrong with them, and you, you squeeze it in your hand and you put, bring it to your nose and you get a particular scent, and then you try your own that's been malted by the boys out west at Voyager, and you can tell there is a vast difference. And it might be the same variety. It could be Spartacus or Latrobe or whatever, totally the same thing but the aromas coming out are completely different whether they're better or worse it's up to you everyone's got a different palate but the beauty again is that it's unique this is this, you're going to taste joanja just when yeah. you start with your process you're going to taste capity or whatever it is that wherever it is that your paddock is and that's really special the scots mm. have been doing it for a couple hundred years that's what i find quite exciting um i'll, I'll tell you a little backstory so my empty barrels, um, well, my 60 square meter shed, I could not, I could not house empty barrels. Yeah. So I've got a, a farmer, uh, he's now a friend, um, and my spent grain is taken away. I take it away, I drop it off. And we got talking about barley and we got talking about everything. And from there, pardon the pun, but an idea germinated um, that he grows barley so I put two and two together and said, well, he said to me, would you be interested? You know, you use barley. I know you use barley. And I went down the line that you just went down. Well, yeah, it's malted barley. It has to be a certain grade. 
which led to a discussion with Stu. So I've introduced them to Stu from Voyager and they're now talking. And the upshot of it is we are going to do a little trial. Nice. Uh, expectations, low, keeping them very, very low. I, I'm, I'm like you, it's, let's just see how this evolves. But to me, that's, that's one of the things that's really exciting about the Australian craft spirits movement. And I do think it's a movement. I, I personally think we don't have a huge amount of constraints you know, from a legislative standpoint, from, from an administration standpoint, things we can do. So now is our time. We are in, we're, we're in a golden era where we can try different things. We can explore different things. And we're small enough. We're agile enough that we can, we can respond to that. So um, what's your take on that? What, what do you think of the, the bigger picture and, and what's going on? Well, look, the other day I went to a, um, um, a um, I was, we were invited to speak at a particular function here in the Southern Highlands. Yep. And there, there was a fellow, um, you, people may know who he is, his name's um, he's Peter Andrews, isn't it? Peter Andrews written a book about how to look after the land. And um, for example, in terms of, you know that we don't spray our crops, we don't use any chemicals at all. It's just whatever yep. grows. So you get weeds coming through and all the rest of it. And his argument in a nutshell is, uh, I'm answering your question, by the way, I'm just getting- That's cool, that's cool. Right? Uh, that um, the, the whole concept about looking after the land, that it's a really good opportunity, and I'm not going green or anything like that, don't get me wrong, nothing wrong with that. But I just want to say, if you can do things that are very special without mucking around, with the science too much. And so there's a bit of a revolution for people, not only in the whiskey industry, but food in general, uh, to try and do things in a, in a, in a way that uh, you're gonna get really good flavors. I always use the analogy, you imagine um, you go to your supermarket and you get this big tomato, it's massive. You can tell it's been grown hydroponically and it's all about yield, no flavor. Well, then you get some tomatoes and you grow out the back with a bit of horse poo or whatever. And they're smaller tomatoes, but it's full of flavor. And you're yeah. doing no harm, there's no nasty chemicals in there. And that's what I'm saying, that the revolution, we are really, the whiskey and the distilling um, uh, industry, if you like, in Australia is moving parallel to uh, this ethos about um, doing things sustainably, doing things in a way that is all about flavour and about the craft and about the human spirit, not about the technology, if you like. And that's, we're part of that movement. Yeah, no, that's good. Now, one second, I just need to do something very importantly. Andrea, can I have another gin, please? <laughs> while you're uh, while you're topping up, yeah, go while for you're it. Topping up, we've had a question come through on Facebook. Um, what was your biggest hurdle to uh, getting started? As in, well, like paddock to bottle, or I, in I'd general? say, in yeah, general, probably. In general, probably, yeah. Okay, Valero, that's a really good question, and that's something I was going to ask. Is just to add some some meat to that question, so. I personally, I think now to get into craft distilling, you've got to have at least two and a half million dollars, three million dollars in your back pocket before you'd even consider it. Um, I think I'm one of the last of the smell of the oily rag distilleries that, that put it together um, from, you know, hoses that don't fit, secondhand pumps, uh, milk vats converted into mash tons and things like that. Um, What's your, what's your take on what, what, where did you start and what do you think on that question, Valera? Well, certainly for me, we were very lucky because in terms of, well, you know that we acquired the property and that building, the distillery building was already there approved by local and state government as a distillery, but it was empty, no water, no power, no Thank equipment. you. 
And uh, so all we, so all that was ticked off. It was now um, really questioning uh, because it's such a vast industry. There's not only whiskey, as you know, there's Roman branded gin and everything, and it's just gone through the roof. Yeah. And so then you start to question and saying, okay, what direction do you take? If you're passionate about one particular spirit, fair enough. But going back to what you just said, you're right. The the growth, and I was one of the sort of sort of early ones uh, that saw from a couple of dozen distilleries to now hundreds of distilleries, and they're all getting better. They're smart. They're tech savvy. And they're going to be very competitive. And so in terms of starting out, like as you said, the because you're probably, like I said, the last of the true smell of an oily rag type, um, but you do it so well, you're going to be successful and you already are. But for anyone looking at getting into the industry, yeah, we've been lucky, true or not. We've been very lucky uh, yeah. because it's tougher and tougher and tougher. Um, the, the only easy part is that if you believe in yourself, you get up in the morning and you say, I'm going to have a go. And you're going to have, and you're going to have that attitude every day. Sometimes yeah. you get this little lurking thing on the side saying, what am I doing? And yeah. you, do have, you go through self-doubt, but hopefully you've got the gumption somewhere deep inside that says, no, you've got to keep going. And, and the most important ingredient is this get up in the morning and have a go and don't stop that. And if you, that's probably the single most important. You do need a lot of money nowadays, you're right. Um, again, there's a lot of very, very beautiful stuff, a lot of beautiful equipment coming out. If you're going to have a show pony, you're going to have a distillery where you're going to have tourists coming over and having a look. Boy, I mean, I'm just in awe in terms of what's out there. Some fantastic equipment coming from all parts of the world, um, the presentation, the whole thing. But by the same token, I'm not going to have any more fun than the day that I come and see you over there at the Capity and have a look at how it's really done the real McCoy. I mean, you can't beat that. That's gold. One of the things which I often think about is, you know, there's a lot of ups. There's a lot of, as I say, natural highs mm. in what we do. You know, you, you sometimes you're, you're, you're bouncing around your shed, you, you, you've got music going, you're really happy and everything's going well. But then other times, everything is going wrong. And when one thing goes wrong, everything goes wrong. Oh, yeah. So when that happens, and, and particularly, you know, you and I can relate to this personally. You know, we both went through the fires. Yeah. You know, we were under direct threat. Mm. And that had a, absolutely had a, had a, had a, a psychological hit. Uh, it, yeah. was, it was hard to deal with that. But it had a financial hit as well. Oh, yeah. And so we, we came out of it. And personally, I thought I'd built in a lot of resilience from that. So when COVID struck, uh, I felt quite resilient. But then I realized in a very short period of time, I wasn't resilient. Um, and it, yeah, this year has been a tough old year, toughest year ever. Yeah. From your standpoint, going back to the fires and how you handled the fires, then COVID, from a, just from a, from a mental space standpoint, how did you and Elisa handle it and... and how did you keep it together to where you are now where, where things are now starting to move and things are, you know, things are a lot better than what they were? Yeah, look, um, I'm going to be 55 in a couple of days and I can tell you categorically that that period for me was where I learned a lot and finally accepted that we're not as tough as we think we are, um, that, that mental health is very important, that acknowledging that, that there, are, there are things beyond our control and in particular, the, 
it's not it's not only the fear of the fire it's the constant stress for extended periods of time yeah it takes its toll and so i learned that um and i don't know that i handled it that well i think the fact that we're out here in the middle of nowhere sort of helps because you do shut off at night at, you know in the afternoon and you don't hear traffic you don't hear noise so that was really helpful very therapeutic but then as you said covid came and i i, I agree 100 that covid even though it's a horrific thing and horrific thing I, I think we were better prepared i think we came out of something that was going to it was um uh, threatening directly to now something that we can have some level of control because we can say we can protect ourselves we can choose not to go into crowded areas we can choose to you know the hygiene the distancing so that was kind of easier even though it's a more horrific thing in the overall world picture uh, it was it was kind of easier because we we were in control whereas with the fires you're not in control yeah yes no the world's the, the world's changed uh forever i th i think which leads me to my next question and this is something which i'm sort of starting to come to a realization i guess australian uh, craft distillers shooting this shit is a manifestation of of my thinking uh, and what i'm thinking is Zoom, virtual, Facebook Live has developed a new platform that we can communicate with our audience. And it's not necessarily our traditional audience. We, we, we've got much further reach. Um, I remember having this discussion uh, with Scotty at, at the Oak Barrel. Yeah. You know, the, the Oak Barrel uh, is, is my spiritual home. It's where I'm launching uh, First Single Malt on the 24th. And the Oak Barrel was a real community um, and really enjoyed it, really used to enjoy going in there and connecting with the people and, and, and going to tasting sessions you know, with overseas distillers and local distillers, et cetera, et cetera. But what's happened with virtual is, and this is what Scotty said, is they're now, they're now talking to people in Melbourne. They're, they're now talking to people all over Australia. You, um, um, Ivan Myers from World of Whiskey has said the same thing. He's, he's international. So their reach has expanded. So our reach has expanded. And this is one of the reasons why I, I put, you know, Australian craft distillers shooting the shit together because I saw it as a way we can connect further yeah. and tell real personal stories about each of the distilleries and what goes on behind. So from your standpoint, have you embraced Zoom uh, virtual Facebook Live. Are you comfortable with the format? Do you see it as it's going to be around forever, or just a just a blip yeah. on the radar? No, I think it's definitely um, it, it, it's definitely out there. It's working. Uh, I've mentioned before. I was looking at the ADSA awards, and it was all um, a virtual presentation, and uh, it really is the way to go. I think um, initially some of us are going to have a struggle with it. Uh, I mean, look. I'm a bit of an old fart myself, but the point is a lot of the younger generations, I've got my daughter Emily coming over next month to start taking over a lot of the uh, stuff here and she's very tech savvy. And so the younger generation will be able to click on really, really quickly. Um, but again, we have to be nimble. We have to be able to adapt very quickly. And also this, the part that I still haven't quite worked out, maybe I'm not that clever, is um, one thing is to do when you've got um, a cellar door, people come over, they're doing a tasting, you're selling some product. When you're doing it virtually, of course, there's different ways of doing that. And yeah. you know better than I do how that can be done. But obviously, from a reality point of view, to turn, um, to, turn uh, to get the sales happening, um, 
the, the important thing is to make sure that you convey what your story is and why your spirit is different. It doesn't have to be better or worse or anything. It's just this is the story and people have to be able to say, I can relate to that story. I can relate to that spirit. I want it. And they're going to buy it. Yeah. Um, so because at the end of the day, we've got bills to pay, as you know. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's definitely the virtual world is here. Well, you talk about stories and you talk about, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to be better. If we're all making the same product, it'd be boring. Mm. Yeah, you, you'd, yeah. You'd, be, you'd be making it by numbers, whether it's whiskey, gin, vodka, liqueurs, whatever. Yeah. Um, but you've got a very unique story. Um, and I, first time I tasted some of your products, I was straight away in my mind, I just had Glendronic, 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 Glendronic. Mm. You, you are the Glendronic of, of Australia, you and Elisa and, and what you do. So for those who don't know about Joaja, tell us your story. Well, your okay, background. So, okay, so the background, in a nutshell, without boring too many people to tears, we've come about this in a very, very different way. I said before, we acquired the property to semi-retire. There's a building there that was built just a few years before and approved as a distillery. And the local authorities told us if we didn't run it as a distillery, they would revoke the consent because it's tied up with the heritage office and so on. And so we bought a still down uh, from um, Tassie, um, went down to visit, of course, Bill Lark to find out how the industry worked, and initially looking at the idea of maybe renting the space out. But after talking to Bill for a bit, he was sort of saying, look, you can probably make your own whiskey if you want. You're halfway there if you can get these barrels in from your homeland, Spain. And I, I, I don't know whether you, well, you, of course, you know, Elisa was born in Jerez, where Sherry comes from. So yeah. we had a bit of a link there. And of course, the Scots have been coming over and I always say pinching our barrels from southern Spain for a couple of hundred years, but I say that of course, <laughs> tongue in cheek. But the point is um, that got the the uh, curiosity going, and then of course I then fell into, and this is what I want. This is again another takeaway: is I fell into this and fell in love with it because I'll give you an example, and this might be a little segue into my next whiskey, if you don't mind, which is yeah, of I course, go for it. Oh, ready? our friend. <laughs> Okay, grumpy that's old man himself. Yeah, grumpy old man, a riverborn. <laughs> now, you might remember. Now, I've always said I wasn't really uh, – Peter whiskies, you know, they, they're okay, but I wasn't really in love with them. But you, I think you were there, Crafty, when um, uh, Marty was there as well and you brought down a sample of uh, one of these expressions and, uh, and I tasted it and I think I remember saying – this is the best whiskey I've ever tasted. <laughs> a peated whiskey, peated whiskey, because you know my son loves peated whiskeys. Elisa, she's dying for me to do a peated expression. But yeah, again, yeah, this yeah. is the, the takeaway: is that for the for the punters out there, again, have a go, it's, uh, uh, have a taste, because you'll find something different. Just because it's a peated whiskey, for example, it not all peated whiskeys are the same. Uh, just no, because no. it's for, and we do this even with gins or even the, our famous little anise liqueur, which is a bit like Uzo Sambuca, that licorice one that we do. Um, people say, oh, I don't like that particular, uh, you know, I had a bad experience. And I say, look, just have a go. And then they taste it and you see them light up. And that's the point that for us, just as it happened to me that I fell into falling in love with spirits. And I traditionally wasn't someone that would be known to go out and have a, have a drink. But now, of course, it's all about the flavour and about the character, the mouthfeel, uh, the aromatics. It, it is, you fall in love. And that's what we want people to understand. It's not about the alcohol. It's not about the ABV. It's about so much more. And oh, you've yeah. got to get out there and have a go and have fun. 
So then on that, sorry to interrupt you, Crafty, there. Local nerd, what's coming, going on? A question that's coming from Facebook yeah. uh, for both of you, actually. Uh, Valero, what was it like releasing with your first release? Uh, how were the nerves and, and, and Crafty as well so close to your own first release? Um, what are you feeling? What, what are you hoping for? Valero, you go first, mate. Well, I'll go first because you're you're about to, I'm sure that you're going through this, but you've got more confidence because you're a really great distiller. You know, for us, look, I'll be honest. So what happened, of course, we we put some, we had some small 32-litre barrels, uh, ex-Oloroso barrels. We had some PX, but they were a, a little bit bigger and they were going to take a little longer. But the little 32-litre barrels uh, were ready to go. Now, remember, we only did two 32-litre barrels in the first year. That was December 2014. And, wow. then, and then we put two 32-litre barrels, December 2015. That's, wow. how, that's how much I was shitting my pants. Like, I just had no confidence at all. Anyway, so when, when I um, – what happened, of course, every few months I'd take a little out and I'd have a little bit – and, of course, I didn't know anyone in the industry at all. And uh, I did have a couple of guys that knew a little bit out and they were saying, oh, this is really good. And I'm thinking, oh, these guys are just pissing in my pocket. You know, I just had no confidence. Um, now, the truth is, of course – being a small barrel, you've got, and, and in the Southern Highlands, similar to Cape Bitty where you are, you get this massive fluctuation in temperature. You get the, these uh, low pressure systems coming through. You can almost hear the barrels hissing. With Absolutely. The, it's, in, it's magic. And, of course, you get a little bit too much flavour up front. So I, I, I could concede that I was a bit worried that it was a little bit heavy on the oak and all the rest of it. But we had to have a go. You have to get out there and learn. And so, of course, when it came out, there were, most of it was very positive. And I, one of the good things is that people are prepared to accept and say, well, this is the first release. There's potential there. Um, there's good things coming. And a lot of people were saying, well, it is your first, but I can't wait to see your second, third and fourth. Um, you know, now you've got the benefit that you've got a lot more experience <laughs> at, this point, no, no, no. <laughs> at this point than I had back then, because back then I'd only been distilling for a year, well, for, for two years. And yeah. did very, very little. So, yeah, absolutely nerve-wracking. But uh, the advice that I'll give, and not to you, Crafty, because you know this, but the, anyone out there that wants to know, definitely get some people that are, are going to be impartial, that are going to know their stuff. It, it, even judges and, and connoisseurs can have very different opinions on, on um, a particular dram. And I'll give you an example, if you don't mind, real quick. Um, no problem, about, about a month ago, our... Ex bourbon cast strength got gold, a gold medal, um, and the other two. So, in other words, release number 10 got a gold, but 11 and 12 got nothing. And now at the ADSA, the other two got gongs, and the one that got a gold got nothing. So, the point is that it can, so don't be too uh, um, concerned. Just make sure that you do get a broad range of people to help you out to make sure that they give you a little bit of guidance in terms of where you're going. And do that early. Don't do it when it's two years or two and a half years old. Do it as it's moving because you have to learn how to manage your oak all the way through, not just at the end. It's not about the end game. It's how you manage that barrel all the way through. Man, that, that so leads into my approach. Mm. So I... I assembled a group of people, which I actually call the Assembled. Hello, Assembled. I know some of you are watching tonight. And that was a group of people that I respect all of them in the group. Some are in the trade. Some are not in the trade. Some are 
video uh, reviewers, and it was it was an eclectic group of people, right? And I chose them all for various different reasons. And I asked them, each of them, I said, would you like to be part of the process of putting together the first Craftworks Distillery single malt release? So not independent bottling. This is it. This is where the ballies are out dangling. And yep. let, let's, let's just see. Very vulnerable. Going. I know what you mean. <laughs> see how we go. <laughs> so um, they, they loved it. And so the first release that's coming out, which is currently under the name of Project Ian. Yeah. <laughs> for a very good reason um i gave them the components of um project Ian. so it's not a single cast it's three casts and it's a marriage of um wet fill cast and uh, heavily charred casks and it's a very very complex barrel program that's pulled it together and then i also look at my my new mate i started three yeah, three years ago, and I went straight into a, a new make spirit, which was based on a, a stout recipe because I liked stout. Yeah. And I look back now and I go, the ballies were really hanging out there. That <laughs> 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 was such a ballsy move, yeah. and it could have backfired massively. As it happens, I don't think it has. I, I think it's I've got a really good Craftworks DNA, which has got a, a really strong signature that's working well with the barrels. So um, I have a degree of confidence that when I release it, it's a good product. I know because of the feedback that I've got from the assembled and other people and even just sell a door. Yeah. So the other day I had someone come in to sell a door and I said, would you like to try this? And this is cask strength. Yeah. And she said, no, I don't like whiskey at all. Yeah. And I said, can I ask you a favor? I said, can I give you a wee wee taste and forget it's whiskey, forget it's whiskey, right? Just taste it and tell me what you think of the taste. And by doing that, she tasted it and she gave me feedback, which was really exciting for me because she had preconceived ideas about whiskey and I'd, I'd basically parked those preconceived ideas and she drank it and tasted it for, for what it was and she liked it. So that's some, some more good feedback. So I, I look at it. I'm, I, yes, there, there's nervousness for sure. Um, originally, I was going to release a couple of months ago and I pulled back. And part of that purely was mental state. I just, I was not in the right mental state to take it right to the line because I, I was doubting myself too much. Mm -hmm. uh, and then as things progressed and mental state improved, and then I, I, I pulled in the assembled. And of course, um, I've got a great creative partner with um, the Todd. Hello, Todd. Hey, Crafty. <laughs> My creative partner for the last two years. So bouncing ideas and we've been working on this and, and other things. But anyway, that's, that's enough about me because I've rabbited it on that, that question. Um, but yeah, to, to answer the question in general, I think from what Valero said and, and from what I've said, it's challenging. It's very challenging. It's nerve wracking. Um, you got to find your own way and um, yeah, hope other people like what you're doing. Okay. So there's another question from Facebook. Hang on, hang on one second. Andrea, yeah. I'll have one more gin and then I'll go on to the whiskey. <laughs> Thank you. Carry on. Okay. So there's another, another question from Facebook to yep. the two of you. 
Do you feel that that whiskey is has the potential of um, becoming flooded like the gin market in Australia? Valero, you want to go on that one? Well, um, I've been talking to a lot of people about this because it, it was, you know, when you, first of all, if you, it depends where, what you're reading, where you're getting your data from. Um, I still think that there's a lot of scope. Uh, I don't think there are going to be a lot of whiskeys coming out, but what happens is that a lot of our consumers are local. A lot of people, like, you know, we've got a lot of a following, if you like. So as new ones come about in all parts of the country, they'll have their followers and they'll put demand on their product. Uh, then you've got the big, some of the big players, which I won't name, but you know, we know who they are and they're really doing wonderful things because they're telling the rest of the world that Australia has whiskey. Um, so a lot of that product is actually going overseas. So from an Australian market perspective, I'm quietly confident that there's still going to be um, certainly more whiskey, but more demand as well. So I think it's going to just grow. I don't think we should be scared. I don't think there's going to be a glut. I, a lot of people talk about price and all the rest of it. And um, the scary part, I suppose, can be that some people that may have started their business uh, on the model of looking at whiskey selling for $200 plus uh, for, for half a litre um, should be a little bit careful. But I'm not expecting prices to drop. Um, I, I'm expecting them to stay buoyant. Um, there's also a level of respect for, for whiskey. Whiskey is a very different product. I'm not saying that it's better or worse. I'm just saying that people appreciate that a lot of a lot more work and risk goes into a bottle of whiskey than say gin. And, and I'm a gin maker as well. So I'm not putting down gin in any way. I'm just simply saying that it is a very, very specific product that has um, a long way to go. And I wouldn't be too afraid having said that, little caveat here, um, we don't know what's around the corner. But at the moment, I'm po positive that the, the market is going to stay buoyant. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've got a, a similar take on it. Um, I, I think what we're seeing is a stratification, and I'm talking specifically whiskey. Ooh, sorry, that was my, my little tripod. Um, uh, there's a stratification which is occurring. So you've got the larger Australian distillers that are gearing up uh, and, and already supply um, a lot of product overseas, so export. Um, and they're pricing accordingly based on their volumes and, and based on their aspirations, pardon me. Um, now, they are actually, I see that as, as a really positive thing for us, the smaller guys, because what happens is someone will come in and go, Let's just make up a name. Uh, what am I looking at? Um, scales on a trolley. Um, that's in the distillery. Scales on a trolley. Okay. So you've got a distillery called Scales on the Trolley. And so a whiskey, a new whiskey drinker who is drinking scotch, for example, and he tries Scales on the Trolley for the first time. And he goes, well, this is a really good whiskey. This is sort of like a scotch, but it's Australian. So... I'm really enjoying it and I'm paying this price. But what happens if I pay this price? What else is out there? And I think that's what's happening is the bigger guys can potentially grow the industry and pull people into the smaller end of town because people want that experience. And I think overlaying all that is things like what we're doing now. We are very, very accessible. 
We tell our stories, you know, come down to our distilleries. We'll tell you what's going on. We'll show you what's going on. The sort of things that are not on a bottle, you've got to experience it firsthand. And that, and you would say the same thing, Valero, when people come into your distillery, it's the whole experiential thing that people just put a smile on their face and they walk away with a bottle and they feel good about themselves. You've taken them to their happy place. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. It, which, and that's, that's a big part of what we do. I also say, yes, there's, um, there's a lot of new entries uh, in the market. And uh, you know, some people, I think, are coming in for the wrong reason. I think some people are coming in for the right reason. This is my own personal opinion. But as I say to a good distiller mate of mine, it's a pool and the pool is getting bigger and we're all playing in our little parts of the pool, right? So yes, it's getting more crowded, but the pool is getting bigger. Mm. So, and if you go back to what Bill Lark said, you know, a rising tide floats all ships or all boats. Mm. We're better working together and trying to grow it as opposed to going down the line of ripping each other down with prices and trying to undercut that's not that's not what this industry is about i came from a competitive industry and that is not why i'm doing what i do now so just on that crafty yeah um uh, leading into another question from facebook do you put much stock in the comments on facebook and the uh the rigorous conversation around price point and bottle size when you go first okay can I go first on this one, Valera? <laughs> so I've been wrestling with my first release. And I thought, well, I can go down the line. I actually did a Facebook post on this today. I said, I can go down the line of making something which is very accessible to the public, general public. So, so you know, a, a mass flavor. I can go down the line of uh, coming up with something very low strength ABV, uh, watering it out and, and just really basic to try and go for a real low ball price. And then I, I realized, well, that's not why I'm doing what I, it's not why I make whiskey. It's the same reason you don't make whiskey to, you know, for the masses, right? That's not what we're about. So I don't feel threatened by pricing people. If they, if they appreciate the craft, they want to engage on a very personal level. Uh, and we, number one, we've got to make good product. I'll, I'll price it accordingly. My first release is cast strength and it will be retailed for $220. And I do not have any reservations in doing that. I, I don't think it's unreasonable. And I, I think if people appreciate the work that goes behind it, fair enough. What's your take, Valera? Hundred percent. I remember we had conversations about this about price. Um, we did a year or so ago, and I am with you one hundred percent. It's not a matter of just us trying to hold or push the price up. It's not that at all. You've got to do your numbers, and you yeah. and don't forget small batches. It's a uh, you you know that we're not going to get a return on investment for some time. So we can't just go along and just flood the market with product with you know by lowering ABV or whatever. It really is craft, and that's really what well, your name's crafty. It's about craft. It's about the artisan component. That it is personalities behind it. Um, you could go along and get um, uh, the Mona Lisa. I'm not comparing ourselves with that, but you can get some artwork. 
and you can go along and make photocopies of it and that's not what it is. It's about the brush strokes and, and those brush strokes that we do when we're there sometimes at two o'clock in the morning waiting for a particular spirit run and you're thinking about when you're going to cut and that takes a lot of time and people, yeah. and when they come to the distilleries, when they see it, they really walk away saying, I get it now. And they walk straight over to the counter and they get a couple of bottles of single malt whiskey at, you know, $200 a bottle. So um, eventually, and when I say eventually, depending on what the market does, there may be a little bit of movement, but I'm still very confident that people appreciate that, that it is craft and that they do have to pay that little bit more. Remember also, and you know this as well, Crafty, um, our distillery, we have reasonably sized stills, but uh, no PLCs, no computers, no data loggers, no actuating valves, no glycol systems. Uh, it's not a factory. It's not a factory. Every part of the, every stage of the production has to be, has to be controlled by people, by our, our hands, our noses, you know, our, our palate. And it's, it, it is craft. And with all due respect to the public, hey, listen, I'll be the first to put my hand up. I've got absolutely no problem paying $200, $300 for a true craft uh, bottle. No problem at all. And I reckon $220 for what you're going to be producing at car strength. It's very, very, you, you've hit the mark. I wouldn't go any lower than that. No. no I, I, and I think you've hit, the, I think that price point, which is very important, mate, you're a master. You've hit the nail on the head. Beautiful. I think it's also, you, you have the confidence behind it you you know you you've done your research you know you know what you produce is is good product um and you tell a good story and and people the business we're in is well i was gonna say humanizing the art of whiskey that's my tagline <laughs> i can't use that one sorry but it's the whole experiential thing people are craving anti-digital people are craving experiential and so anything we can do to, to help them on that journey with experiential is so valued by people. And I, I find it all the time in my cellar door. People just light up. And you're the same. You'd be exactly the same. 100%. 100%. All right. Well, we might, we might finish this love fest for now and change the subject. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to go on to rum. I want to go on to rum. I, I was talking to a local uh, today and uh, he, uh, he came up to me and he said, mate, you making rum? And I went, oh, I had a crack at it earlier this year. Uh, it'll be a couple of years, but yeah, absolutely. I want to make some rum as I'm going down the track. And he goes, give it a go with Bonox. Make up a cup of Bonox and throw some rum in. You'll love it. And I went away and I thought about it and thought, that's very interesting. <laughs> What's your take? You're a rum maker. So what's your take on Bonnox and rum and what's your rum journey? Why are you making rum? Well, rum, we started rum. First of all, I didn't really think about doing rum at all, but, um, and I don't even remember how it came about. I guess just reading up on it saying, gee, it seems to be relatively simple. And then, of course, there's a lot of talk about what, obviously, sugars from sugar cane, but whether you use molasses and the different types and, you know, um, and uh, whether you use sucrose or raw sugar and different things. And I thought, look, um, just on the face of it, because I didn't want to overthink it. It was just really an experiment. And I said, well, because I know I've got very a lot of intensity and flavour from the barrels, because the barrels are just as important, if, if not more, I thought I'm not going to do all molasses. I'm going to do half molasses, molasses uh, from New South Wales, Manildra, um, yep. 
Not that I've got anything against Queenslanders, of course, but I wanted to keep everything in New South Wales, part of the New South Wales Distillers Collective, as you know. You know, the point is, cutting to the chase, I said, let's go a little bit easy on the heavier flavours in molasses. 50% molasses, 50% just sucrose, just white sugar, just to keep it a bit cleaner. Um, dissolved it, fermented. I didn't do any dunder or anything like that. Didn't know anything about dunder. Still sort of trying to grapple with different expressions about how that works, but I didn't do that. Um, double distillation straight into a PX barrel, a 64 litre as well, four of them. Two years later, bottled. Um, and like I said, uh, we've just found out now that ADSA have given us a silver for that one, and you've tasted That's an OP rum. Um, oh, beautiful. And I'm really proud of that because I, I, I guess the only part that I can say that I take a little bit of credit was that I didn't go too heavy on flavour. I really wanted to cut back. And, um, uh, but that's all. I don't know very much about rum. Um, I learned more about rum from speak, speaking and, and chatting with people like yourself and, and people like um, uh, Gavin Gillen and other people and even, uh, of course, Rubor and uh, Marty Pye uh, yeah. about how, how to work rum. So um, I'm trying to get stuck into making some more. And I wish I could tell you more, but all I did there, the only part that I can tell you is that I was very cognizant of the fact that if I really went for heavy flavour, I, I didn't want to overdo it with a very small 64-litre XPX barrel. I can't remember. Um, you know, the there was an ADA conference in Adelaide oh, two, three years ago. Did you go to the Adelaide one? Yeah, I was there, yeah. Do you remember the rum, rum geek? You remember that guy? I think. Rum geek. So I'll, I'll tell you my story of the rum geek. So I wanted to make rum yeah. um, and it was sort of down the track, you know, maybe a five-year plan, make the rum. And there was this guy called the rum geek. He came out of Europe. He had some bars and he was a real rum knowledgeable person. Connoisseur. And he did a masterclass. Okay. And I was there. Um, I, I think Marty from Riverbourne was next to me. I can't remember whoever. Anyway, so we had all these different rums lined up. And he was standing at the front. So the room was packed out. He was in the front and he poured a rum and he was standing there on his own and he was just swirling the rum in the front of the, the, the class. And he was just nosing it, closing his eyes and going off in his mind, right? And you watched him and you went, man, this guy is so passionate about rum. He's just sniffed a rum. It's just taken him off on a journey and he's standing there and he, he sort of just stopped and went, oh, oh shit, I've got people in front of me. I better start talking. So he talked about rum, the journey of rum and all around the worlds and rum. And I, and I took one thing, one thing uh, from, well, I took a lot of things, but the one thing that stuck in my head and actually advanced my journey on rum, he said, you guys in Australia, he goes, you know, you, you can make rum. You can make really good rum. He said, just use those wine casks that you got out there and all those different casks. And he said, and just make dirty, dirty rum. The world wants dirty, dirty rum. Yeah. And he's right. Rum, there's a rum naissance. Scotty from the Oak Barrel talks about it a lot. The rum naissance. Rum is happening. Rum is happening as we speak. Um, it's exciting. There's, there's a lot of different people making rum. As you mentioned, Brian and, and Janice from, from Blackgate, they've been making rum for 11 years, I, I think. You've got Husk. You've got um, 
James down, down in down in Melbourne making rum and, and others making rum, Riverborne making rum as well. So what's your take on you get people coming to you to distillery that and you present, you know, you talk about rum and they go, mate, I've had a bad experience with rum. I don't want to know about it. And you you give them a taste of your rum when you had rum. What what do you see when they taste your rum? What what do you visually note? Well, again, with the craft movement, people are realizing that it's just not, I'm not again, I'm not going to mention the big the big yep. rum companies, but they're yep. different. They say, well, I didn't know rum could taste like this. So when I had rum, I don't have any more. Um, one of the things that I, I remember thinking, I've got to be careful not to be perceived to be um, sticking my fingers in too many pies. For me, yeah. it was, uh, letting people know that I'm a distiller first, uh, but I'm not going off on all sorts of tangents. Keep it very conservative in terms of the, the age spirits, which is your brandy, your whiskey and so forth, and the rum. But to answer your question about the rum, um, the first thing, sometimes I get ahead of myself and warn them and say, don't forget this is matured in a PX uh, barrel just to, because I didn't want them to get a shock. Uh, whereas a lot of the rums, of course, ex-bourbons and other, other barrels. So um, in my particular case, the big eye-opener was that we can produce rum. And if you've got barrels that are a little bit quirky or different, that's, that's the beauty of it. That rum, just the same as whiskey, whiskey is so broad. I mean, I'm just yeah. in whiskey. But rum can also be very exciting, generally a lower price point as well, which is good for some. And you yep. see complexity, still being able to really pull things apart and really get a wonderful experience uh, without paying that little bit more for what are the whiskies, which, are, which deserve a little bit more because a lot more work obviously goes into whiskey than rum. Uh, yeah. but, but the good thing again is that sometimes you do get people and you can see, they look at the shelf and they say, wow, a couple hundred bucks for a bottle of whiskey. And then got to be careful here because then they look down to the next shelf and they say, oh, dark spirit, 69 bucks, bang. And you've just missed out <laughs> for the whiskey. Yeah. So, Cannibal, cannibalize your own sales. <laughs> yeah, be a little bit clever about how you do that. But yeah. Um, but yeah, rum's exciting. And I think that rum's going to be the way to go. Well, there's also a lot of talk about things like craft vodka, which vodka, of course, for me, traditionally was always ethanol and water, low uh, low. Um, uh, aromatics, uh, no, it's no flavour, no, no, um, anything. And I've been convinced recently by someone who I won't mention and showed me that you can have uh, a craft, craft vodka. And, and so I'm tinkering with that a little because you know I've got a column as well. And uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent, getting back to rum because of um, some parts of the economy that are suffering. They're not going to be able to come along and say, "Yep, I'll get a couple of bottles of whiskey or rum," and they may. Yep. You know, other products that still have a very high craft component, but just don't have the the the, the high price tag. Yeah, well, that um, that is interesting because uh, I wanted to have a discussion with you about gin. So, for many many years, I said I will never ever ever in my lifetime make gin. I have no desire to make gin. I don't like gin. Uh, and then over the years, I've been drinking gin, learning about gin, uh, very much driven by my good friends, Carew, Nick and Ali, Carew Distillery, and started to appreciate uh, Australian contemporary gins. Um, Aisling Distillery uh, down in Griffith, uh, making some amazing gins. Your gin, I've tried your gin, amazing. Um, and I'll tell you a shot in the dark story in a second, yeah. little side story. 
But um, to me, there's, and I, and I joke about this with Nick and Ali from Karoo, there's the whiskey world. And the whiskey world, you know the platform. It's solid. You know what's going on. Whereas the gin world, the gin world is a really crazy, crazy world because there's so many entrants. You know, everyone who opens a distillery, a brand new distillery, well, not everyone, but a lot go boom, straight in, into gin and, and make gin. Some are doing it for cash flow um, because ultimately they want to make whiskey, but they can't afford to. But the gin world is like this, whereas the whiskey world just seems a lot more stable. What's your take on the gin world and the whiskey world? Yeah, the, the gin world is, um, a, for me, a little more concerned, more daunting, even though it's not really what I wanted to do. Um, we obviously, had the, as you said before, at the beginning, whilst you're waiting for the whiskies to come along, um, you're going to have a little bit of a play with some gin. Gin is, can be very confusing. For starters, you're to, as you said before, the ingredients for whiskey are fairly simple, uh, even though you can have flavours from left, right and centre. But when it comes to gin, any number of combinations and permutations, it goes on forever. And, and you start to say, well, where, uh, even though it's a lot quicker and sort of easier to make gin, it's more difficult to get the balance right. It starts to get more uh, tedious, if you like, I, for lack of a better expression, because I, I love playing around with it, but it's tedious because you're going to sit there and you're going to say, how am I going to get the base, which is, of course, let's say it's your, your London dry, the juniper yep. fluid, and then you're going to start playing with all these different other flavours, aromatics, uh, botanicals uh, to come up. Now, you can read any number of books about how to do that. At the end of the day, um, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about what, the way that I went, which is, has been successful for us. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, I wanted to do a gin that I could say I like my gin. You know, I don't want to go along and produce a whiskey and say, gee, I don't really like my whiskey, but it sells well. You know, otherwise it's not, it's not, you're not being honest. So when yeah. I, I'm just telling sort of you the way I did, I just got juniper base and then I started playing with, because I, I was trying to scramble for botanicals. It was so difficult. This is going back two or three years ago. It was a bit more difficult. And I started playing around and I ended up tasting one particular formula, which ended up being my only my fourth iteration. And I said, I really like this. Now, of course, a lot of genes, particularly gold medal winners, if you have them neat, they're not going to be very pleasant. Uh, they're really designed to be had with a tonic, for example. But yep. what I was realising was that when you've got people coming over, the general public coming over to your distillery and they're going to taste your gin, generally you're going to give it to them neat. And so, of course, you want them to have a pleasant experience. And when they taste it, they say, wow, this is a sipping gin. You could have this without anything at all. And, yes. and, I, and that's where I had bing, and I said, right, and they buy a bottle straight away. Mind you, mind you, I'm not suggesting that we're um, deceiving anyone in any way, not at all, because a lot of people then do go away and say, actually, I don't like gin because I don't like the tonic they put with it. I actually like the gin. So they actually now buy my gin for the gin itself. And in yep. fact, some of the comments we got back with some of the medals or some of the competitions we entered was precisely that, that it's a wonderful gin neat. Uh, so, so for me, because maybe I'm a little bit lazy, I said, you know what, it, it's a gin that is really very pleasant. Leave it, don't touch it. Now I'm going to go along and experiment with other expressions. But for now, my opinion is keep it simple at the beginning. And then you can then start to let it evolve as you start to find new botanicals that you can play with. Yeah. But, but yeah. I, my advice is keep it simple. A lot of guys come along, guys and girls go along and say, oh, 12, 15, uh, 20 botanicals. Uh, it gets too busy. I, I couldn't possibly 
uh, I'd just go crazy. I'd just be there half, uh, two hours trying to think of what happened in my mouth, in my palate, you know, saying, what the hell? How it, how, it, how it all interacts and, and whether it's maceration, whether it's yeah. in the pot, whether it's vapour, yeah. I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the story of shot in the dark. So actually, before I do that, um, Luke and Todd, how are we going for time? Are, are we still okay or are we getting towards we've the end? Just, we've just hit an hour. Okay, so we'll keep going. We're, we're in flow now. We'll keep going. So We do have a couple of questions to put to you too. Okay, let me just do the shot in the dark thing and then uh then we'll take some questions so valero so um so marty from a good friend from riverborne yes. rang me up and he knew i was struggling to try and put a gin together and so he said come on down come on we're gonna make some gin so i was like mm. and i was in a bit of a bit of a hole just you know mentally wasn't in the right place for it i go all right i'll come down so i came down took the family down and because uh, we always love going down there. It's a beautiful place in the world and seeing Marty and Eileen. And he goes, right, we're going to make some gin. I go, right, okay, how much are we going to make? You know, and I'm thinking we're going to make like two, four litres on a lab still you know, at the back of the shed. He goes, nah, we're going to make 100 litres. And it's like, what? <laughs> we're going to make 100 litres of gin? So, so I had a, a basic uh, recipe and we played around with it a little bit. Um, we threw some uh, some ginger into it, and we distilled it. And at the end of it, we tasted it and went, "Yeah, it's tasty, but it's not really gin. It's tasty." And he goes, "Ah, oh, I can turn it into a kumquat liqueur. That'll be fine. Don't worry about it. So it's all good." So anyway, uh, about three, two months later, uh, I'm drinking it and going, oh, "This is actually quite interesting. It's it's evolving." And then he rings me up and he goes, I actually really like this now. Um, and they've had people tasting it. So they released it. They released it and it's called Riverborn Shot in the Dark Gin. And it's called Shot in the Dark because A, it was a shot in the dark, absolutely. And B, I was not in a good space and it was, it was in a dark space. So it was uh, a pick-me-up, which is... It's quite a beautiful story and the gin means something. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's a little gin story. Yeah. No, gin, gin can be a lot of fun. can be a lot of fun. Oh, exactly. That, so what's that? Sorry, sorry, Val. Carry on. No, no, you go ahead. I was going to say, so what's the questions we've got, Todd? Hit us with some questions, mate. Okay, so this is um, from Kelly on Zoom. Yep. She's actually put three questions in. Oh, there we go. Okay, so... How do you picture the distillery in five to 10 years? This is to both of you. Valera, five years, mate. That's a long time. Well, five months is a long time. Five months <laughs> is a long time. Well, if, if I'm still alive in five years, um, well, certainly at the moment, we're pretty excited because we've, we've got um, Emily, my daughter, coming in to help do a lot of the administrative type stuff and uh, to keep, keep me uh, on the straight and narrow in terms of the discipline of of what distilling is all about. Um, so um, that's a good question. I, I would like to be pretty much where we are, maybe have a little bit more efficiency in how we have, like we've got a very small distillery, as you know, um, and it's getting a little bit cramped. So certainly from a phys physicality point of view, like you, I'd like a little bit more space so that I'm not double handling a lot of stuff. You know this better than anyone, probably handling things 10 times before you can get to, to where you want to get. 
Yep. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> At least. <laughs> least. I don't necessarily um, envisage getting bigger, but, but the only way we can be competitive is to have some things that will help with the economies of scale. So that's fair enough. But I don't want to sell my soul and get, you know, uh, um, automate anything, for example. I still want to mash in, at the moment, mashing in by hand. I may have to let that go. Um, because um, you've got to get protein rests, thing. you've got to control temperature a bit better. And so there are little things that I want to do technically, but I, do I want to get bigger? It depends how much my daughter wants me to pay her. <laughs> I can relate because my daughter is 10 and a half. Yeah. Uh, she was chief designer when she was eight and she designed the label Black Soul Beast. Nice. Um, She's now back on the payroll, but she doesn't get paid um, yet. And she's designed something which is very cool for next year as a release. Um, so in five years, she'll be 16. So getting to the stage, hopefully, you know, it's a, it's a family-owned business. It's a small business. I'm like you, Valero. I, I don't want to build an empire. I, I just want to build, an uh, build a distillery, which I have a comfortable living. I can do what I do definitely improve some efficiencies <laughs> maybe save some money as well it'd be nice to have a european holiday from time to time as, as well but, yeah, yeah <laughs> get no. back to spain <laughs> yeah, yeah definitely yeah yeah no no yeah. aspirations certainly um uh we want to continue with as you know what we want to go for that authenticity of the, like the terroir the problem yeah. thing that's really yeah. for us also little things like energy efficiency we can get a little more hydro happening with the spring to get a bit of power generated from that. Just, just to make the, the whole um, story, um, just build on this concept of authenticity in the craft and in the produce and what comes out of the paddocks. But maybe put down some and play around with some vodka, uh, put down some vines, paddock to bottle, um, brandy. Um, but yeah, small, nice. Small, small quantities, but just to be able to show that it's not just about whiskey or, or gin, that we can do the traditional spirits like your, your age spirits and a bit of gin and maybe even a little bit of craft vodka, um, but continue with the whole concept of craft. Yeah, that's nice. So that was question one. There was three questions. Was there, Todd, from memory? That's right. Um, Valero might have asked, answered the, the second one. Yeah. Um, but I'll, answer, I'll ask it anyway. Um, do you have any projects in the pipeline that you'd like to share with us? That's to both of you as well. Oh, where do you start on that one? Val, do you want to go on that one? Um, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, know, yeah, you go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, all right. I, I've got, I've got, yeah, quite a few, <laughs> quite a few. Uh, so I have a, a very good uh, brewer mate, a guy called Dave Henderson, hopping, Clover Brewing Company. Um, Davey Boy and I are doing uh, barrel-aged projects. So he's taking whiskey barrels and making beer, and then I'm getting the beer cast back and then refilling, which I'm really excited about. Um, I want to make a Craftworks beer. I want to take my mash bill and see what sort of beer it makes because originally it was based on a stout, so that could be interesting. Um, I have a relationship with the local winery in uh, Mudgee, Peter Van Gant Winery, PVG. Um, and we're doing some interesting projects. We'll continue to swap barrels. So basically I take a vintage port barrel, I'll make a whiskey, 
And then that'll go back and they'll refill it. And we go back with some Fords and we do different things. Uh, there's another winery called uh, Debeau Repair. Uh, Will, a good friend of mine, local. Uh, we've talked about doing some projects and uh, con collaborations. And we're both massive fans on Armagnac. And uh, Debeau Repair is situated at the same sort of altitude. It's got a climate very similar to Burgundy in France. And they make French style wines. So we have been talking, I think, I don't think it's confidential. It's not now, that's for sure. <laughs> We've been talking about how can we do an Armagnac type thing? So that's a, that's a project. And, you know, uh, yeah. there's, the, the, the challenge you've got is time and focus. Now, that's the challenge I've got. And I'm sure you've got it too, Val, is uh, where, do you, where do you put your energies? Because you, it's very easy to get distracted by bright, shiny objects. They take you off and go, you don't make money and you go nowhere. So you got to focus, don't you? Yeah. Well, just one little quick thing. I'll, tell, I'll give um, the viewers, the punters out there, a, a little bit of a scoop that you've got here. Um, Con strictly confidential. Confidential. <laughs> so, um, you know, of course, that most people are aware that a sherry is not just one wine. It's, of course, a range of wines that can range from the sweetest of them all at PX, which is your sweet sherry and goes right to the other side with your pheno, which is completely different grape variety and very, very dry. So uh, very happy to tell you that, of course, we've got in only about a month or maybe six weeks ago, a whole lot of barrels. Uh, now, not only PX but, and Dolorosa, but now we have what we call Amontillado. Oh, nice. So that's pretty rare. And so we're experimenting with that. And also finally, um, barrel aged gin. We've got just one little barrel just to play with for fun. And that comes from a, a northern region of Spain called the, uh, La Rioja, which is a region in northern Spain, and that's a slightly different. But, yeah, we're always playing with barrels. But, look, you're not a distiller if you don't have imagination. If you're not dreaming, you're not a distiller. You're always dreaming, dreaming about how you can really play around with flavours. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, I'll just add to that. Well, that actually answers the last question. Okay, yep. What is a crazy dream that you would like to achieve? Okay, well, not a crazy dream, but sort of along the lines of what I was just going to say. Um, so a few years ago, I came up with the concept of the New South Wales Distillers Collective, um, which was basically a group of New South Wales distillers working together, helping each other, giving each other a leg up and doing some collaborative projects. And so Valero, myself, Marty from Riverborne, Brian from Blackgate, uh, Ed from OCD was in it originally, Mobius are in it as well, and, and uh, trying to think who else. But the idea is, and yeah, Valera, I was going to ring you and talk to you about this. So yeah. I've just done a project um, with Marty, um, and we've vatted some of his uh, whiskey with some of my whiskey. Um, and, and the three of us, we've talked before about doing a New South Wales, it's not blended because it's all single malt whiskey from distilleries. It's just the blending of th three distilleries. But the idea of uh, Joadja's richness, the, 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 the PX, the Oloroso, the, the Glendronachy style with Marty's real fruity driven style and potentially peated and mine, which is, is quite lush and chocolatey the combination of three and making a just a really interesting release, New South Wales release. 
So that's a mad idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, no problem. I know you're in. I always in. <laughs> um, but I think um, now that you've talked, to the, you've asked a question about mad ideas. It's not really well. I suppose it can be perceived to be mad, but you know that uh, Joadja, it's a it's a mining town. Well, it's an abandoned mining town, and you know that we've got over ninety kilometres of tunnelling just in that little section of valley. And Ooh. what we want to do is get some barrels and mature them in the mines. It's a bit more stable. It's going to allow us to get more maturity a little bit. We need a little more time under barrel to let the spirit settle. And so yeah. for me, the, the dream here is to be able to do that. Of course, a bit of a dilemma because it's not a bonded area. So I've got to make sure that uh, either I pay for the excise upfront and then remove it from the bond store and hide it into one of the mines or get permission to do it. But I don't think that's going to happen in a hurry. It's a little bit difficult because, of course, the ATO may be a bit concerned about security and other things. But uh, I'll just have to cop the angel share. So uh, whatever the angel share is, I would have paid for it up front. But imagine whiskey matured in mines that were mined by the Scots in Australia 130 years ago. It, wow. Talk, talk about uh, a, a real, a real um, homage, if you like, or a... Um, uh, a legacy, if you like, well, legacy maybe not the right word, but basically just in honour of the, not hundreds, but thousands of Scottish people who came to Joadda to mine the kerosene shale in the hills. Uh, many of them never left. They worked, played, lived there and never left uh, and perished there. And so just in honour of the Scottish concept, that would be my dream to be able to mature whisky in the mines, mined by the Scottish people in Australia 130 years ago. Uh, that's very, very cool. For those in Sydney who have not been to Joadja, whiskey lovers, so how far are you? You're about an hour and three quarters out of Sydney? Yeah, about an hour and three minutes down south, yeah. Yeah, it, it, is, it is a very, very interesting distillery. I think personally, and it is a personal opinion, but I think it's one of the, the, the most pretty, beautiful distilleries in Australia. Uh, it's very, very scenic. Uh, it's amazing landscape and yeah, it's, it's a place to visit. So, you know, an hour and 40 out of Sydney, it's well worth the drive. It really is. And there's a lot to do down there and a lot of wineries in the area as well, of course. Um, so what, any other questions we got there or, or we, uh, there's one, there's one more on, um, zoom from, from for it. Yeah. To, to both of you. What is your favorite scotch? expression and why oh that's easy <laughs> that's so easy <laughs> i'll go i'll go val um so for me there's one distillery scottish distillery which i hold up above all other distilleries and mainly because it was so inspirational for me in my journey uh from very very early piece um it's brook laddie I'm a massive, massive fan of Brook Laddie. It started in the early 2000s. It started with the, the resurrection of Brook Laddie Distillery with their first release called The Resurrection. But um, the things that they did, the, the expressions, the, the types, within a single distillery, you had everything you wanted from a peated whiskey right through to an incredibly sherried whiskey. Um, so Brook Laddie, massive fan to this day. And one of the, the, the great things that'll be a real pleasure for me uh, when I release my first single malt whiskey is I'm cracking open a bottle of Brook Laddie um, Black Arts. I think it's a 1986 
which is pretty damn special. So Brooklad, I love a lot of a lot of other Scottish distilleries. Don't get me wrong, um, but Brooklady is just up there compared to others. Galera, what's yours? Oh, you there, Val? Yeah, Val just needs to turn off his mic. Oh, turn your mic off, mate. Can you hear me now? Yep, hear you now. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, for me, again, probably because of the sherry influence, it's a real staple. Everyone knows it, but it just I just love it. Uh, I, I actually use this as a, a little – you know that I don't drink a lot, just a little tiny bit, and I really enjoy Abelor, Abenar, oh, oh. Yeah, mm. I just love it. And there's something about it that doesn't upset me at all because sometimes you have a cast strength and it can give you just a little bit of heartburn. This one just is just beautiful for me. It just maybe again because of that sherry influence, it just hits the spot for me every time. I can't floor it, um, and it's very well priced, and it's just one that I just love. Yeah, no, yeah, I agree, absolutely agree. Stunning. Yeah. Cool. Any more questions? That's it from me. Luke? Okay. How's our time? Um, Nine seventeen. Uh, another question uh, oh, oh. to uh, to caramel or not to caramel? <laughs> you saw my head shaking. No way. <laughs> Never, ever, ever. The question is why? Yeah, no need. No. The only reason caramel is used is to create uniformity of colour, which... In a bulk batch, you, you, you're basically just trying to get consistency in, in a look. But uh, no, you'll find most, in fact, I don't know any Australian craft distillers who are making whiskey that are using caramel. But uh, yeah, why would you? Let the barrel do its work. Yep. Mm. So, any closing remarks from either of you? Yeah, I'll, I would say so. This is uh, episode two of Australian uh, craft distillers shooting the shit. Um, when I put this idea out, uh, within 24 hours, I had 24 Australian craft distillers that were like, hell yeah, I want to be part of this. Um, that's now jumped to about 40. And I've got more people that are saying, yeah, I want to be part of it. And I think they want to be part of it because what we're trying to do here is just have a conversation. Mm. Um, and you know there's no there's no marketing there's no bs it's 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 just we're having a conversation and saying what's going on in our little worlds and each of our worlds is different um the point i'm trying to get across is that we are very interconnected it, you know it's i i see it all, all the time i, I see people uh, come in and go yeah you know, i want to want to come into this industry and they say well what advice would you give me? And I'm relatively new to it. I, you know, I've only been in it five and a half years. Um, and I say, surround yourself with good people. You know, surround yourself with mentors. Get to know people, and don't don't just be a a taker. You know, you you need to you need to share your experiences. You need to connect with people. It's it's a family. It's an environment. It's a it's a movement. So if you want to be part of it, yeah, you know, be part of it and, and contribute. So hopefully Australian craft is still a shooting the shit is, is helping. Uh, and, and we'll see how we go with episode three, four, five, 102.
What about you, Valero? What's your finals? Yeah, no, you're spot on. I think uh, what you say is exactly it. Remember, I came from a slightly different background where I was. I didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a distiller. I, I fell into it and found, um, of course, coming from a very uh, cutthroat type industry, I was in building and developing and other things, and it's very cutthroat and everyone's got, it holds the, the, everyone, they'll hold their cards close to their chest. That doesn't apply here at all. Quite the contrary, you really open up and you, you know that you're sharing information um, f f from the love of it, not because, um, for no other reason, you just, you are so passionate about your craft that you don't mind uh, chatting. And, and you hit the nail on the head that it's not all about surrounding yourself with people and feeding off them, quite the contrary. They're gonna learn from you as well because, hey, the first lesson that you learn is from your mistakes and we've all made mistakes and I still make mistakes every day. Uh, that's part of the charm as well. Uh, knowing that you say, wow, I've just learned something because I did something wrong. And you share that with people and you have a, you have a laugh, you have a sense of humor about it. You can't the uh, camaraderie that exists, particularly um, in, in distillers, uh, craft distillers, uh, and not, not taking anything away from the bigger guys because they're inspirational as well in their own right. They're, like I said, they're dragging us up to the international market. But uh, yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah. Mm. Uh, now, some good final words. So I think we'll call it there, guys, unless there's any more questions, but no more questions, we'll no call questions. it. All right. So that's uh, episode two, Australian Craft Distillers Shooting the Ship. Episode three in two weeks, uh, and I'll put out details on, on who it is. Uh, the other thing, too, is we've now got a few internationals lined up that are dead keen to, to get involved with it because they, they love what we're trying to do here. Um, so we've got, uh, so far, we've got uh, Ned, uh, head distiller from Waterford Distillery in Ireland. And Waterford is doing some really interesting things on the world stage. So to be able to shoot the ship with Ed, uh, with Ned, is going to be pretty awesome. Uh, we've got Alan Bishop from Spirit of the Lick, French Lick, uh, Indiana in the US. Very interesting character, all about the craft. Uh, it's going to be a really exciting conversation with him. Got Miles Monroe from Westwood. He's then keen to have a chat, and we've got a. We got a stout connection, so that's going to be a fun conversation. Uh, and we got um, Rachel McNeil from Isla. So Rachel is a mover and shaker in Isla. She knows everybody. She's coming from the educational standpoint and, and tourism standpoint. Uh, so we'll get a bit of a an insight into Isla. And she's been telling me some interesting things about Isla and where Isla is right now because it's so reliant on tourism and of course there is no tourism international tourism right now in the uk so that's going to be an interesting discussion and there's a few others as well lined up so yeah keep following um we're now on youtube so if you haven't watched it you can uh, pick it up on youtube and uh let's just keep shooting the shit and see where it goes hey eh? crafty out see you guys thanks see ya. Bro.